Hey, this is Julio. Hey, this is Steve. Before the podcast starts, we want to welcome and give you the opportunity to support our ministry by visiting our website at www.bridgemenlaredo.org. Scroll down to the bottom of any page and you'll find the PayPal donate button. Bridge Ministries exists to share the glorious good news of Jesus Christ and to equip people to be transformed by the renewing of their minds. If you would like to help us in our mission of making affordable or free Bibles and Christian books available and also to check out the orphanage that we support, visit our website. And this is podcast number eight, numero ocho, <laughs> that is. And today we have an excellent podcast for everyone who is tuning in. Uh, we're bringing on a special guest, uh, someone that's had an, an extreme impact on my Christian faith, on my walk with Christ, on my Christian worldview, on my apologetic, on my theology, and my eschatology. And... Um, yeah, and so I'm, I'm, it's, just, it's just a pleasure to bring this, this gentleman on today. Uh, the whole podcast, we're going to be talking about baptizing babies and how Christ is going to be victorious throughout history. But before we start, um, Steve Denhartog, uh, my co-host here, uh, just has a couple of words to say before we get this uh, podcast kicked off. Yeah, I just want to uh, tell Douglas again how much we appreciate having him with us here today. And uh, within Orthodox Christianity, uh there are a lot of divergent views on various topics, and I think two of the biggest that we probably see are baptism and eschatology. And um, so the purpose of our podcast here today is not to be divisive by any means, but just mm-hmm. to talk about how uh, sincere Bible-believing Christians arrive at their differing views, and uh, we're all unified under our faith in Christ Jesus. And uh, But there are there are differing views on, on mm-hmm. these topics, and so we, we, we just, again, appreciate having Douglas with us today because uh, these two topics are something that can be very divisive, and so we want to kind of flesh it out a little bit more. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So we, we, already, we, we already mentioned his name already, but I'm just going to give a, a quick introduction. So in his blog, he states, I'm an evangelical, post-mill, Calvinist, Reformed, and Presbyterian, pretty much in that order, unquote. Uh, he's the pastor of Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, and a faculty member at New St. Andrews College. He's also a prolific debater and speaker. He has been featured in two great documentaries, uh, some that me and Steve have, have watched, Collision, which takes us uh, and pretty much documents uh, him and Christopher Hitchens' uh, promotional tour for their book that they co-wrote, um, Is Christianity Good for the World? And that's amazing and then the one that we recently watched was free speech apocalypse which i think everybody should go watch especially for right now yeah for sure (laughs) and uh he's the author of 45 plus books in which uh two of them we will be discussing today to a thousands generations and heaven misplace and uh here's none other than douglas wilson thank you for coming on man Uh, thanks thanks for having me i appreciate it yeah yeah so um, for our listeners who don't know, could you give us a brief synopsis of uh, you know, who you are and your testimony of just God drawing you to his son? Um, sure. I, I um, grew up in an evangelical home. My, my parents uh, were uh, very godly, consistent uh, Christians in, mm-hmm. their, in their walk. So I, basically it was one of these—it uh, was an idyllic upbringing in my mind looking back. I, 
I, I just enjoyed um, growing up in that covenant home. Mm-hmm. It was I was baptized in a Southern Baptist church in the Christmas Eve service when I was 10. I had professed faith in Christ some years before that when mm-hmm. I was little. So I, I had a Baptistic upbringing mm-hmm. and sort of a broad evangelical Southern Baptist flavor to to it. Yeah. Um, I so I grew up after after I uh, was grown. I after I graduated high school, I went into the Navy and uh, spent four years, just under four years, in the submarine service. Mm. And when I got out. I came to my parents had moved to Idaho. I grew, I'd grown up in Annapolis, Maryland. Okay. Uh, that's my hometown. Uh, but my parents had um, been in Ann Arbor for a brief time and then moved out to uh, Moscow, Idaho. Uh, so I decided I'll just go to school where my folks are to you know get caught up and do all that, and then after school I'll go you know go do what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the roots went down pretty quickly. Uh, within a year or so of arriving here. Um, I found myself pastoring a small Jesus people church, mm-hmm. which is the same church I'm pastoring now, Christ Church, mm-hmm. and um, uh, got married. We started having kids. Um, so I got out of the Navy in 75, and we started Logos School in 1980. Um, and ba- basically, the, the institution started to grow up around some of the stuff we were doing. So okay. that's why I'm still here. Um, and then at, when I became the pastor... Uh, when I assumed the the preaching teaching role at mm-hmm. what is now Christ Church, I was uh, still in school. I was still an undergraduate, mm-hmm. and um, and it was a loose, like I said, Jesus people type of thing. Mm-hmm. And the church sort of grew and exploded um, to a few, you know, two three hundred people. And so by the time I graduated, there wasn't any real possibility of getting away to go to seminary. Right. Um, and so I decided I needed to do on-the-job training. I, I needed to do serious reading Interesting. Um, on the job. So I, I started to do that. And basically, the, your two topics uh, today were the result of two clusters of my reading. In the, in the mid-'80s, hmm. I, I read through a bunch of eschatology, worked through a bunch of eschatology, hmm. and came to um, my post-millennialism then. And then it was a few years later, I became Reformed and Calvinistic, mm-hmm. and then about five years after that, I came to Pado-Baptist convictions. But mm-hmm. w- basically, it was the knee bones connected to the thigh bone is connected to the hip bone. You know, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. one thing led to another. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed the book to a thousand generations. It's a very, um, uh, I mean, it, it's a good case. And then too, I, I kind of learned the uh, the full orb of covenantal theology while reading it. And it's not a long read too. I, I loved it. So, um, yeah. So our first question here, um, and I wanted to ask in the under, in the introduction of to a thousand generations, you wrote, in order for us to be satisfied that we are being biblical Christians, we must uh, content with nothing less than a clear biblical case requiring infant baptism. In a doctoral manner of this importance, the standards of evidence are high. Um, you know, Knowing you were once credo, uh, give us some of the evidences you found requiring infant baptism, which made you come to the Pado-Baptist um, just convictions and, and position. Yeah, um, I should point out, and this, this is, might sound bad, I, okay. you know, I hope it doesn't, but <laughs> um, most of to, to the book to a thousand generations mm-hmm. most of that book I wrote 
when I was still a Baptist. Oh, um, wow. interesting. And because I was I was hungry to read a case for paedo baptism uh-huh. that answered the questions that I had. <laughs> so yeah. a lot of that is an exercise in me thinking out loud. I I read paedo baptist books and looking back on them, I think they're fine. I don't uh-huh. I agree with them now, but for whatever reason they weren't scratching my itch. They weren't answering my questions. Hmm. Yeah. And um so one of the, one of the things I I wanted and I was striving for is I didn't I didn't want uh, to do something as big a deal mm-hmm. as baptizing an infant on an argument from silence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't want to base it on, well, the Bible doesn't say that we can't. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, so I didn't want a, a, that kind of an argument from silence. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so I, I wanted something that I could ex- I, I could point to and make a case from the text mm-hmm. that uh, that said. Uh, hey, listen, the modern evangelical church is not how things were functioning in Jerusalem in the first century. Uh, those those Christians were gathered in synagogues. Mm-hmm. Right? And James um, James tells us that if a rich, wealthy man comes into your synagogue and you give him a place of honor, you're, you're um, uh, basically showing partiality. And then later in the book, he says, if, is anyone sick? Let him call for the elders of the ecclesia, the church. Mm-hmm. So clearly, he's using synagogue and church interchangeably, mm-hmm. and uh, so then I thought, well, okay, what was a if a couple, a married couple in that synagogue in AD fifty had a infant boy? What was that boy's relationship to his parents' synagogue? Right. Was it was it the same as <laughs> a young Jewish boy's? relationship would have been for centuries before or was it something new and completely different like a new covenant church mm-hmm. where he had to join himself when he was 15 right uh, um yeah well th- now if you assume that that's the kind of thing that you're you're projecting our practices on the new testament is very clear in James and in Acts and that uh that's not the world that they were inhabiting interesting so you uh so you wrote this book kind of uh to think through um your to come to a greater a deeper understanding i guess of a biblical perspective on baptism and not necessarily to defend a specific position but but kind of a working through it and uh discovering for yourself right. what the bible had to say right um so uh, Pedo baptism is obviously the conclusion I came to, mm-hmm. and the thing I'm arguing for. But I, when I commenced that process, I, I didn't know what the answer was. Right, mm. right. Interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, yeah. And um, so you also make it clear in your book. You said, "quote uh, No, uh, like that. You're not. There's no intention, whatever, to defend the many forms of unbiblical infant baptism. Uh, you know, as Pedo Baptists." Usually, whenever we rather you know talk about this with with Baptists or people who are new to even hearing that the Protestants are for um, uh, infant baptism, this is sort of like the baggage we kind of have to like lift off. So I wanted you to to talk about um, Doug about just the the forms of infant baptism that are unbiblical. Um, sure, principally here in the West, the principal form of it that I was wanting to distance myself from is. Um, 
what is understood in Roman Catholic mm-hmm. practice. Right. So they have they have a uh, an approach to baptism, um, sum, summarized by the Latin phrase "ex opere operato" mm-hmm. in the work working. So they they hold that g- baptism imparts grace, the same way water flows through a garden hose, or or the way a hot iron burns. Mm-hmm. It just does it. Yeah. So if you're if you if you've got an ordained priest and he's doing the sacrament, then the sacrament is efficacious. Mm-hmm. It just right. um, the the grace goes in when the water goes on. Right. Mm-hmm. And for for Protestants who hold to the solas, if uh, you can't say I believe in sola fide, and then parenthetically and also baptism, mm-hmm. um, it's got it's got to be faith alone. Mm-hmm. Now, the faith alone can use certain secondary instruments. So, for example, a sermon. A sermon is a secondary instrument, or a, a track left in the laundromat is a secondary instrument. Mm-hmm. But the Word is not efficacious un- until it's combined with faith. Mm-hmm. Faith is the, the catalyst that makes everything go, mm-hmm. and that's also true with baptism. Mm-hmm. So, um, if I baptize an infant and this child grows up uh, not loving God, uh, he's despising his baptism, and that baptism doesn't impart any uh, saving grace at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it it what it does is places places him under greater um, obligations mm-hmm. than he you know obligations that he is ignoring. But it it's not like it's getting him part way there. <laughs> the only thing that gets us there is faith in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, but once we come to faith in Jesus, uh, that faith can pick up all sorts of secondary instruments as a um, as things that it incorporates into the whole saving event. Mm-hmm. So, does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Can you talk a little bit more, too, about um, the difference between a a pedo and a credo baptistic uh, perspective and the you know the covenantal aspect of the uh, the the pedo baptist perspective and just like I flesh that out a little bit more because i think that you know a lot of times that's unclear with people you know the different uh, ideas that we have about baptism from those two mm-hmm. different perspectives yeah yeah so um and this is um one of the problems, I, one of the difficulties that evangelicals in North America have is not that they're evangelical, and by that I mean holding to the absolute necessity of the new birth, mm-hmm. which I also I, I, I also hold to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is the fact that we have taken that and enshrined it in such a way as to banish all those secondary uh, characteristics, right. so um, the, those secondary instruments. So, for example, a Jew, Paul says clearly at the end of Romans 2, that a true Jew is one who is one inwardly, not one who is circumcised merely outwardly. Right. right? Mm-hmm. But, so that's always been the case. In Deuteronomy 10, it says, circumcise your heart, you know, circumcise your hearts. Uh, Joel says, rend your hearts, not your garments. Mm-hmm. So all the way through the Old Testament, they always emphasized uh, heart religion to be preferred over externals, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I, d- I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Um, from Hosea, or sacrifices and burnt offerings I did not require, but a humble and a contrite heart from the Psalms. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you, you point 
to all those places in the old, you know, all those places in the Old Testament that require true heart religion, and I would say amen to all of it. Mm-hmm. But then they still practiced physical circumcision. Mm-hmm. They still circumcised infants. Right. Yeah. And right, so you if you, if you say that um, if you emphasize uh, heart religion and the evangelical new birth in such a way as to disparage or despise or set aside the importance of things like baptism and church membership and attendance and mm-hmm. reading your Bible and all those things, what you've done is you have uh, drifted beneath an Old Testament level mm-hmm. right the old testament the old testament balance uh combined heart religion and externals mm-hmm. the hypocrites held to the externals only mm-hmm. and that's the same thing that hypocrites do today now mm-hmm. what this means is that uh muslims know who their people are jews know who their people are uh but oftentimes uh, western christians don't know who their people are mm-hmm. you know how can i how can i point to the invisible church Mm. Right. That yep. that's something that is going to be revealed at the end of history. Days, yeah. um, and so what I maintain is that when a, a, a person is baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that person is covenantally connected to Christ. Mm-hmm. He's covenantally um, part of the body of Christ, and by that I mean the visible church. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Whether whether he goes to heaven or not when he get hit, gets hit by the bus is a function of whether he had faith, true saving faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. Right. Just with that said, a lot of objections, and this is probably the most common one that we have, and I, I really wanted to, to hear your argument, your, your rebuttal to this one. Um, and it's the common argument that, you know, in Scripture, in the New Testament, there's no instance of children being baptized. Uh, what, what, is your, what is your rebuttal to that? Okay. Um, that's, I'm glad I'm so glad you asked that. <laughs> yes, so, um, you you read you read through the Book of Acts, and and the Baptist objection at this point is absolutely correct. There's no mention, and mm-hmm. then they took the infant Demetrius and baptized him. Mm-hmm. Right. So what's going on at the local Presbyterian church cannot be found in the Book of Acts. Mm-hmm. So I I grant that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but but what happened to me in a Southern Baptist church, being baptized when I was 10, that's not in the book of Acts either. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. mm. so I, I was born to Christian parents. I always believed in God and in Jesus. I always accepted the gospel. I uh, prayed to receive Christ when I was four um, and went to church, and the church we were going to, this is our church, my church. I was growing up, I was growing up in the faith. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then at a particular time, I, I went forward, professed faith in Christ, and was baptized. Mm-hmm. I can't find that in the book of Acts anywhere either. Mm-hmm. That's just utterly absent. And the reason both of them are absent is because, and this is really important, mm-hmm. is what to do with the second generation is absent. Mm-hmm. So um, the book of Acts is all frontier evangelism. It's all new converts. We we are not we are not given a glimpse of what the third fourth and fifth generations looked like the, um, in 150 A.D. when a a Christian couple had a child d- did they do what they did with that child did it look more like the Jewish synagogue with infant baptism 
instead of circumcision, Mm -hmm. or did it look more like a modern Baptist church? Mm -hmm. Well, that's an argument from silence both ways. Mm -hmm. So it would have been natural for early Christians um, to include their children in the covenant, right? In that covenantal relationship that God instilled that he, that he yeah. began with us, with Abraham, and it, it, it just would have been a natural thing for children to have been included yeah. in that covenant of which baptism is now a sign of that. Yeah. Is that correct? Um, yes. So, uh, but I would, I would want to ramp it up a bit, and I'm not trying to sure. ostracize anybody here, but I, I'd like to make it, it. state it more strongly. Not only, not only would have been not only would it have been natural for them to treat their children that way, it would have been outrageously unnatural mm-hmm. for them not to. Sure. So if if you go through the book of Acts, the single biggest controversy, and, and other parts of the New Testament, the single biggest controversy was over whether or not Gentiles had to become Jews mm-hmm. in order to become Christians. Sure. The Jerusalem, the Jerusalem count, and but that tells you how Jewish the the first generation church was. Sure. All the default all the default assumptions are Jewish, and they had a big uproar over whether Gentiles could come in as Gentiles. Sure. And they decided it the right way, but as you can see in the book of Galatians, Paul was Paul thought it was touch and go. He wasn't quite sure which way it was going to go. Sure. Um, now, here's a thought experiment, and this is the right. This is the right kind of argument from silence. I think, if it was such a big controversy, mm-hmm. if there were, if there was such a big controversy over letting Gentiles into the covenant as Gentiles, mm-hmm. what kind of controversy do you think there would have been had the apostolic teaching been, teaching been that we are excluding Jewish infants? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Jew- Jewish infants had been included for going on 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> okay? Yeah. Now, if all of a sudden you say, sorry, um, he's, he's an outsider, he's not converted until later, I'm not saying that God couldn't have done it that way or decided to do it that way, but I am saying it's really mysterious that there's not a whisper in the New Testament of any controversy over the exclusion of the children. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So the argument from silence is really not an argument at all, because it would have just been a natural thing for them to do, to include the co- the uh, right. covenant children in that in that sign. Yeah. I always use exactly. the, the, what is it, the, the health care analogy. Right. <laughs> Which you have, I, I've talked with Steve about this, that you, that you have the, 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 well, in this case, the old, the old covenant, when you have the, the health, the health care bill, I always say, and it, it included children and everyone's expecting the new covenant. And all of a sudden it's like, Hey, the, the, the children's are, the, the children aren't included in this bill. Right. So, <laughs> so it's, right. I, I always and, kind and, of, and then that's a great illustration. And then try to pretend that that's, that measure passes without anybody raising questions exactly about it. Yeah. yeah yeah so i've 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 kind of looked at it in that way and so yeah i mean i always like you know i've seen in the uh and just in the new testament that yeah it, it was assumed in acts chapter 2 is is pretty uh indicative of that too mm-hmm. exactly so but uh yeah no it, it it's an it's an awesome book and i recommend uh you know people who are going to come here to bridge to pick it up um, to a thousand generations by Douglas Wilson, infant baptism, covenant mercy for God's people. It's excellent. So now moving on to uh, heaven misplaced, Doug. <laughs> uh, 
Um, okay. <laughs> the, uh, I, I personally haven't read this one yet. I'm actually reading Dr. Kenneth Gentry, who's going to be coming on in December. Uh, he shall have Dominion. But I was looking through it today, and I, I love what you have to say. But um, So Heaven Misplaced, it's a, it's a book on eschatology through a post-millennial position. So for those of you who are, you know, right. we're, we're, we're throwing out these two big terms, eschatology and post-millennialism, eschatology is the study of end times. So, and within it, there's four right. um, positions in Christendom that are orthodox, which is the dispensational premillennialist, um, historic premillennialist, um, mill, and post-mill. And so what well, well, this whole entire book is, is looking at eschatology through a post-millennial lens. So I want to ask a question, Doug, and let our listeners know I'm post-millennial. And so are you. What is postmillennialism? Okay, the easiest way to understand it is, um, but let's acknowledge a little anomaly first. Mm-hmm. Revelation 20 is the one place in the Bible where the word millennium appears. Mm-hmm. And it's a notoriously difficult chapter in a notoriously difficult mm-hmm. book. Mm-hmm. This phrase appears one time in that chapter, well, appears in that chapter only. And then all the eschatological positions are named in reference to what you think about that uh, that millennium. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're we're walking on thin ice in some respects. But um, I would prefer to speak of post kingdom, or uh, I haven't been able to come up with a phrase that's um, that's not clunky. Mm-hmm. But what it boils down to is this: that all the prefixes uh, pre, ah, uh, and post mm-hmm. basically tell you where that school of thought places the second coming of Christ right. with reference to the millennium. Mm-hmm. So there's this, there's this millennium at the end of history. The premillennialist says that Jesus comes at the beginning of that millennium. The amillennialist, uh, the, the ah is a term of negation, like atheist or uh, agnostic. Mm-hmm. And basically they're saying there is no earthly millennium. The second coming of Christ is not related to the millenn- to the millennium chronologically at all, mm-hmm. because the millennium is going on in the heavenly places. We're ruling in Christ Jesus now, and then Jesus will come sometime, but not with reference to any earthly millennium. Yeah. The post-millennialist says that Jesus Christ is going to return at the conclusion of the millennium, at the, at the culmination of, uh, of the millennium. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, uh, the the premillennial position, the, the the historic premillennial position, can be either historically optimistic or historically pessimistic. Mm-hmm. The amill position can be historically optimistic or pessimistic. The postmill position has to be historically optimistic by yeah. definition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's the it's it's the position that says that the Great Commission will be successfully fulfilled, the earth will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, and when the Great Commission is finally established and Jesus is recognized everywhere and in every nation, then he will return. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, I, I, I um, for a Bible study for a whole entire year, I... I was studying dispensational premillennialism, and so I, you know, kind of held to that for a while, and I kind of just assumed that it was the correct one because, honestly, the majority of evangelicals hold to that 
this uh, this new eschatology that is that is fairly new, and it wasn't until I heard uh, Dr. Greg Bonson and you and Jeff Durbin <laughs> and you guys sort of pushed me over the edge into the post millennial camp and uh, um, Gary Demar and uh, and so, um, but I I do want you to address this, you know, just like we we're talking about infant baptism and how you know we have to have evidence or biblical credence for what we believe you know we hold that same standard just like to mm-hmm. to, to uh, infant baptism to our eschatological position so i did want you to talk i mean, I mean we're running short on time here so but doug I, I would love for you to talk about just the scripture that gives credence for the post millennial view of history you have isaiah 9 um, psalms you know uh, 1101 uh, First Corinthians fifteen, and then the parable of the uh, the mustard seed as well. Mm-hmm. I know you can't go through all of them, but you know, <laughs> just go ahead and take a shot at it. Sure. Um, uh, probably the um, my favorite post mill text would be the second Psalm, uh, mm-hmm. um, it, yeah. because the Father says, uh, "Well, He says in the second Psalm, you are my Son today, have begotten you,' mm-hmm. and." That's quoted in Acts 13 as refer- being a reference to the resurrection. Hmm. Uh, so it's not talking about the eternal begetting of the Son. It's talking about him being the firstborn from the dead. Uh, he's, uh, so God the Father begets Jesus from the dead as his, as his firstborn, as the first fruits of the new humanity. Right. Um, and so that verse in Psalm 2 is talking about the resurrection. The first verses of the psalm are talking about the crucifixion, um, where God laughs them to scorn, and mm-hmm. uh, the kings of the earth take their stand against the anointed, against God's Christ. Mm-hmm. And then after um, uh, after the resurrection, right after the resurrection, the psalm says, ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, mm-hmm. the ends of the earth your possession. Yeah. And so what God does is he vindicates who Jesus was by raising him from the dead, and the first thing God says to him after the resurrection is, it's all yours. Ask whatever continent, whatever city, whatever nation, whatever tribe, whatever town, mm-hmm. just ask me, it's yours. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then notice that Jesus says in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Yeah. Okay, so apparently he asked for all of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, God invited him to ask. God invited him to ask for any of them, and he asked for all of them. Mm-hmm. And so he told his disciples to uh, the Great Commission. And we have to look carefully at this. The Great mm-hmm. Commission is not a statement that says, "Go into all the nations and get market share," or "Go into all nations and uh, and get a, a plant a church such that you can pay the bills and have a, a, a tiny little beleaguered group." <laughs> yeah. Um, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go, disciple the nations. The direct object of the verb disciple is nations. Yeah. Disciple everybody and everything. Yeah. And um, so I think taking, uh, I think we need to come to grips with the greatness of the Great Commission and what that commission was based on. So then you cited Psalm 110, uh, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool. Mm-hmm. So Jesus is going to be sitting at God's right hand for how long? Well, it's all, all, all his enemies, enemies are yeah. subdued. Uh, and, and that's how Paul interprets it in 1 Corinthians 15, mm-hmm. which incidentally was the, the verse um, that caused something to snap in my head that made all this come together for me. For Paul, Paul says, 
for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Yeah. So it doesn't it doesn't say that he is going to come back. Uh, the, and he says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Mm-hmm. Well, if premillennialism is true, then the first enemy to be destroyed is death. Hmm. Um, Jesus, Jesus comes back and the dead are raised, the very first thing. Well, the the Bible teaches that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father, mm-hmm. and he's going to remain seated there until all his enemies, death only accepted, are subdued to him through the preaching of the gospel. And then he's going to come, and by his coming, destroy the last enemy, death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that that's basically my post millennialism, in a nutshell. Yeah, I think it's interesting too in the uh, in the Great Commission where Jesus says that uh, he is with us always, even to the end of the age. You know, yeah, and that uh, he didn't just tell us to go out and to make disciples and to baptize the nations, but he is with us um, to that end uh, through you know his Holy right. Spirit being with us, and so yeah. Yeah. The other, uh, there's another, if, if you don't mind, uh, sure. another yeah, important sure. line of, of, of evidence, uh, and that is uh, God's love for the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the the most famous uh, verse in the world is John three sixteen shows mm-hmm. up at all the ball games, right? Sure. Um, but but consider the next verse, John three seventeen, mm. for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Mm-hmm. Um, now, most evangelical Christians, if you ask them, Jesus is coming back again, and when he comes back again, what's he going to do? And they would say he's going to condemn the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. most most people will not have believed, and everybody they don't believe in Jesus. Then they, they you know, so Jesus comes back, and boy, is everybody in trouble. Uh-huh. And but but the Bible says that God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, mm-hmm. but to save the world. What was the mission? The, the mission that Jesus had was, and, and this is so important, mm-hmm. his mission was not to try, to try to save the world if the world would only let it, mm-hmm. but they probably let him, but they probably won't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He didn't come to try to save the world. He, um, he came to save the world. Mm-hmm. So when John the, Baptist, John the Baptist turns and looks at Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, not the Lamb of God who tried to take us, who tried to take it away, but the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and he uh, or First John, he is the propitiation for our sins, mm-hmm. and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, basically, what it boils down to is, uh, and this I'm I'm going to bring in another strand, which is my Calvinistic or Reformed thinking, but picture a chasm between God and man, mm-hmm. an infinite chasm. Um, the, the, the eschatologically pessimistic Calvinists mm-hmm. want a bridge that goes all the way across the chasm. They want an efficacious bridge that actually saves people, which is very good. It's a good thing to want, mm-hmm. but because they believe just a handful of people are saved at the end, mm-hmm. They basically have built a rope bridge across the chasm. And uh, pop evangelicalism, Arminian evangelicalism, wants everybody in the world and their cousin to be able to fit on that bridge. Mm -hmm. They want a great wide bridge, Mm -hmm. but it only goes halfway across. Mm -hmm. 
everybody can fit on the bridge, but it doesn't secure anybody's salvation. Mm-hmm. Um, now, as a post as a post millennial Calvinist, um, I, I can harmonize things that many Calvinists can't harmonize. Why not have a wide bridge that goes all the way across, mm-hmm. where God ac- actually efficaciously saves people? But not only does He save people, but He saves the world. Mm-hmm. So. Um, uh, Jesus is described as the Savior of the world. He's the propitiation for the sins of the world. And and I I regard this as statements of Scripture that that God does not uh, say mission accomplished until the world is actually saved. Hmm. Would you uh, talk a little bit, too, about how that um, post-mill perspective influences Christian praxis? Like, uh, what difference does it make in the way that we that we view the future and, and, and what we do right now, our practice right now as Christians? Yeah, because usually, I mean, you, you have the pessimistic view of eschatology. I mean, I've heard, <laughs> you know, premillennialists pretty much say, I mean, the the, wor- the the worse it gets, the better, <laughs> you know. And Jesus is coming yeah. soon, and you know it's. I mean, I, I've I've heard it from Jeff Durbin a couple of times before. I don't know wh- who I heard it from, but he's just. Uh, it's pretty much like telling a football team, "Hey, we're going to lose the, mm. the end of the season. We're going to win the championship." I mean, what kind of demeanor and attitude does that create? And then if you just apply that to the church, so yeah, I I would like to get yeah. that just that perspective on how eschatology does matter. Yeah, you if you aim at nothing, you will hit it. Right. Right? <laughs> if you if you've got um if you've got a loser's complex, you're the other team, you're not just playing the other team, you're playing yourself. Mm-hmm. And if you if you believe with all your heart that it's prophetically necessity, uh, it's a prophetic necessity for all this to just come apart, then the chances are pretty good that it's going to come apart. You're it's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. So, um, so what I want us to uh, realize is that um, we win, they lose. Mm-hmm. We're, we are told to disciple the nations. We were told to do these things. Mm-hmm. And if you believe, well, it's just not possible. Then, and and you go through life, every ministry you plant, everything you start, everything you try to do. You say something like, "Well, it's all going to burn, man." You know, or right. we're going to get helicopter. We're, we're going to be helicoptered out of here any time now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the mentality sets in that, the, the, you've probably heard the phrase, you don't polish brass on a sinking ship. Yeah. <laughs> you don't, uh, if if this is all going down, then why bother, Father, yeah. right? Why, why uh, if, so um, my parents knew a missionary couple uh, in the, at the time of the Second World War who didn't have children because they were convinced the world, the end of the world was at hand. Mm-hmm. Right, wow. and so what what happens is that they they cut off generational faithfulness mm-hmm. because they misunderstood the times they were living in. Yeah. So if I if I think I'm living at the end of the world, and I'm actually living in the middle of history, or if I'm actually living as I believe we are, I I, I believe that we are actually part of the early church, mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, fu- future school children. Will be sweating over. I can never remember who came first. Was it C.S. Lewis or Augustine? You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. So, in, in in regards to the parable of the mustard seed, I think I've heard from you that this is a passage that some people wish wasn't in the Bible. Am I correct? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, just go off of that. <laughs> yeah, so ba- basically, um, the the kingdom of God, uh, we are not told. We, mm-hmm. we are told of corruptions in, through Christ's parables. He, he said yep. the kingdom of God is like a pile of dead fish, and, and then the guy had to sort the good fish out from the bad fish. And mm-hmm. then it's like a wheat field, and there's the wheat and the tares, and you have to have the harvest, and then you've got to separate the wheat from the tares. That You've got... Uh, the responsibility of making a distinction, mm-hmm. but we have the we have the false idea uh, that the good and godly fruit, the wheat, is you know we think it's a tear field with a couple of wheat stalks in it. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's a wheat field with tears in it. Mm-hmm. Um, the parable of the mustard seed is this little tiny unobtrusive thing that gets planted and it grows into this huge plant. Um, or uh, it's the kingdom of God is like leaven that a woman put in the, the flour, mm-hmm. and it leavened the whole loaf. Yeah. The kingdom of God, um, basically, Jesus teaches, grows silently, inexorably, until it takes over the whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's, what, uh, that's what the mustard seed means. That's what the leaven in the loaf uh, means. And it, so the kingdom of God does not arrive like the 82nd Airborne. Right. The kingdom of God <laughs> a- arrives the way leaven works through a loaf of bread. Right. Yeah. And I think we see that throughout history, don't we? I mean, if we yeah, we, we can look at, you know, a 10 or 20 year period and, and maybe we don't see a whole lot of difference in, in the church growth. But when we look at it throughout history, you know, we look at where they started and where we yeah. are now. Uh, as as far as the church universal, you know, around the world is concerned, um, the, the growth is dramatic, especially in the Asian countries now. And and uh, oh yeah, and so there's it, that's absolutely that's absolutely correct. Um, the last 100 years has been the explosive generation mm-hmm. for in the propagation of the church sure the, um, this is this is where it's starting to go exponential sure hmm. yeah interesting and and just because a lot of the objection from post-millennialism is like hey you, you well, it looks like you're envisioning a utopia where everybody is you know saved and believe believes in Christ or that the um that we're doing this kind of like on our own power and our own limb. And I kind of wanted you to clear that up, uh, kind of clear the smoke in the yeah. room, so to speak, on just some of the false, um, I guess, presupposition that some people believe concerning post-millennialism. Yeah, so I don't I don't believe that it's a utopian state. I believe mm-hmm. that there will be unbelievers right. um, down down to the end. I just, I just mean and intend that the that evangelism will be largely completed. The the world mm. will be overwhelmingly Christian, mm. not that every last person will be Christian. Right. Um, so it's it's not like everything's going to be bright and shiny and made out of stainless steel. Right. It'll be people. You'll still be dealing with people, and um, and people will still die. Yeah. If you die when you're a hundred, it'll be considered a curse. But people will still die. There'll still be funerals. There is still going to be earthly existence and not everybody is going to have their act together there there will be there will be problems and there will be a need for pastors and a need for counsel and it's all uh right up to the right up to the end so it's not a utopian airy fairy kind of um uh thing at all and what was the second you asked me a a second question um 
was a, it was the uto- utopia and um we're doing it on our own yes is, yes oh, we're doing it on our, our own, our own right. yeah because yeah, yeah and, I, and all i can say that all i can say there is that i want absolutely nothing to do with a secularized post-millennialism mm-hmm. yes. when <laughs> when post-millennialism goes when when post-millennialism goes to seed what you get is sort of like the international geopolitics of woodrow wilson mm. that's Uh Uh, where people are out making the world safe for democracy and the gospel falls out of it, you've got a social gospel sort of thing. Right. Um, Orthodox post-millennialisms, post-millennialists would abominate that as much as anybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's all gospel preaching, all gospel preaching all the time. Yeah. I think the thing that's really appealing is that it gives us an optimism, though. You know, there's a palatable optimism there for the future. We have that to look forward to, and it calls us to arms, you know, not physical arms, obviously, but it calls us to be the church that God has has ordained us to be. Yeah, yeah. I've never really got it. Just when I used to hold to my prior eschatology, it's like, why would, you know, Christ come, you know, establish his church— uh, when he tells Peter, you know, on this rock, you know, not even the gates of hell will prevail, you know, and 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 we're, you know, just I guess the whole world's going to go to hell in a handbasket, mm-hmm. and God would set it up that way, and I it couldn't, it didn't really click until I listened to you and Bonson, and I was like, wait a minute, this yeah. just fits so much better, and not, and 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 it just seems biblical too, because we're just not going off of emotion, you know, it's it's we're going to scripture, right. and and using that, and it, it's just a beautiful. You know, I almost see it kind of like as a as another not another gospel, but <laughs> you know, it's just good news. It's another sort of good news within the good news. <laughs> Amen. It's optimistic. Yeah. It's it's like it's all the same gospel. Yeah. You know, um, but it's like it's it's all the same gospel as our brothers elsewhere preach. But I do want to say that we're standing at the same pump, and you can go regular, or you can go premium. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is premium. I think it. I think it. It burns cleaner. <laughs> yes. Oh man. Well, thank you so much, Doug Wilson, for for coming on. We would love for you to come back um, again sometime. Maybe talk about some of your other material, or have you come back on? And I know there's so much to go through when it comes to post millennialism. So, um, you know, maybe yeah. sometime in the future, if you'd be willing to come back on, that'd be sure. that'd be great, man. So, thank you so much. Be Doug happy Wilson. to consider it. Yeah. Thank you. you yes. All right. Yeah. So that wraps up the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. And um, yeah, that was that was awesome, right, Steve? That was great, man. That was, that was great. Good. I enjoyed that. So much stuff to ask him. <laughs> Such know. a busy man. I'm glad he came on. But anyway, guys, uh, we hope you enjoy that podcast. We'll try to get Douglas Wilson sometime back on in the future. Um, but until next time, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And remember... Drink good coffee. Yes, drink good coffee. (laughs) And remember that Christ has all authority over heaven and earth. Go out and make disciples of all nations, tribes, and tongues. We'll see you on the next one. Bye-bye.